Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, Promising Practices for Meeting the Behavioral Health Needs of Duly Eligible Older Adults. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on August 2, 2018. In this podcast, Dr. Neha Jain, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine, provides a geriatric psychiatrist perspective on meeting the behavioral health needs of duly eligible older adults. I am very excited for this opportunity to talk to the group about a geriatric psychiatrist perspective on meeting the behavioral health needs of duly eligible older adults. Next slide, please. So what are the common conditions that we see among duly eligible older adults? First of all, they are much more likely to have a behavioral health diagnosis compared to Medicare-only beneficiaries of their age group. The most common behavioral health conditions that we see in this group include Alzheimer's disease or other dementias, as well as depression. Next slide. Substance use disorders are also fairly common among older adults, uh, mostly tobacco, alcohol, as well as psychoactive prescription drugs. This can be a significant factor in how the disease progresses and what the prognosis is, as you can imagine. One of the challenges that we see with older adults in substance use is that they often experience symptoms like pain or anxiety or insomnia as they get older and are more likely to be on prescription medications. And then this becomes a challenge as the aging brain becomes more more vulnerable to the side effects of these medications. They also tend to have lower levels of family support as well as financial resources in comparison to Medicare-only beneficiaries, which makes this sort of a double challenge to treat. Next slide. And so as a provider, what are the common challenges that we see when we're caring for dually eligible older adults with a behavioral health diagnosis? The the biggest problem is that less than 3% of all adults that are 65 and older actually see a mental health professional for treatment. This is a rate lower than any other adult age group. And the reason for this is things like stigma around behavioral health problems, this discrimination that people feel that they would be subjected to if they sought help. Some misconceptions, like depression is a normal part of aging. No, it's not. This idea that as an older adult, if you have a mental illness or a substance use disorder, you will not be able to recover, which is not true. And lastly, and this one really bothers me, this idea that older adults are no longer productive members of society, so it really doesn't matter, which is absolutely not accurate. There is also a high prevalence of comorbid physical health conditions, which makes it a challenge. And lastly, the poverty and isolation that a lot of these older adults live in can be quite challenging and provides issues like access to, you know, trouble with access to care and and lack of resources. Next slide. Um, So briefly, um, considering um, some challenges when prescribing medications, Um, As we get older, the way our body processes medications and the way the medications affect our body changes. So older adults tend to have more side effects as well as more intense side effects, which makes medication treatment a challenge. They're more likely to have multiple medical conditions and to be on multiple medications, both of which can be problematic, and we'll talk about this in more detail later. 
And usually what I suggest to residents and trainees is, you know, start low, go slow, and sometimes you have to keep on going. So the other thing I see is people start low, they go slow, but then they stop because people are not getting better, when oftentimes it's a matter of keep on going until you get to a therapeutic dose. Next slide. And so our focus today is going to be on one behavioral health condition in particular, which is late-life depression. Late-life depression can be defined as depression in anybody above the age of 60. This could be a recurrent depression, somebody who has been depressed for most of their life and are now depressed again. They just happen to be older than 60. Or it could be a new-onset depression. They've never been depressed before but are now depressed. This is also called late-onset depression sometimes. The prevalence of late-life depression among dually eligible elderly is actually quite high, close to 19%. And some of the challenges that we see in this population with late-life depression, um, this is very important, I think, for people to be aware of, that the depression may not present in its typical way. It may not present with sad or low mood or crying spells. It's quite likely to present with unexplained physical symptoms like pain or fatigue or even with vegetative symptoms like sleep changes and appetite changes, because these are expressed more easily. Oftentimes, they're comorbid medical conditions, you know, the common ones such as hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, um, for us to be aware of. And then this next one, cognitive decline, this is something we'll talk about in more detail, because cognitive decline and late-life depression seem to go hand in hand, and it has significant impact on management of the symptoms. Suicidal ideations, both suicidal ideations as well as successful completed suicides are more common in the elderly, which makes it a very vulnerable population. And again, people are on multiple medications, so there is polypharmacy and there is more side effects with these medications. And lastly, treatment resistance. Um, people, Elderly people particularly don't respond as quickly and as well to medications as younger populations do, which can make it a challenge. Next slide. So late-life depression and cognitive impairment. Broadly speaking, the idea is that the brain circuits that are disrupted in depression overlap with the same circuits that are disrupted in cognitive impairment. So having late-life depression predisposes individuals to cognitive impairment. Some researchers have gone as far as to say that late-life depression is a risk factor for uh, a development of cognitive impairment or a dementia. Older adults with late-life depression have limited response to treatment with antidepressants. Treatments do work, but not as well as they do in the younger population. And then if they have a cognitive impairment, it limits their ability to participate in non-medication measures such as psychotherapy or exercise programs, which again adds to the challenge. Next slide. So what do you do if you're actually seeing somebody that has both depression and cognitive impairment? I think addressing the cognitive impairment as a separate issue is quite important. That can be done through medications such as cognitive enhancers, medications for the behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, such as sleep-wake disturbances or anxiety, talking about aids for daily management, such as keeping lists and calendars and labeling things in the house. Um, discussing the use of safety aids like alarms, life alert systems, 
locks on doors if there is a wandering risk, communicating um, well with the patient if they need hearing aids or other assistive devices, making sure they have access to those, as well as with the caregiver, discussing both the diagnosis as well as the prognosis of the cognitive impairment, and then referring patients to outside resources, community resources like local chapters of the Alzheimer's Association, specialized dementia clinics, or national resources such as Centers on Aging. Next slide. So talking briefly about um, how we treat um, depression with medications, uh, the first-line medications are SSRIs and SNRIs, so medications like citalopram, escitalopram, paroxetine, um, SNRIs like duloxetine, venlafaxine, desenlafaxine. These are our first-line agents. If uh, people don't respond well, we sometimes end up using tricyclic antidepressants, um, which work well but have um, a worse side effect profile for the elderly. We use low-dose atypical antipsychotics for augmentation quite a bit, and atypical antipsychotics may be beneficial for the elderly who are emaciated or have a lot of weight loss with depression because they can help with some weight gain. There is atypical antidepressants like bupropion or mirtazapine, and lastly, there are non-antidepressant augmenting agents like the thyroid hormone or stimulants like methylphenidate or even lithium. Next slide. Moving beyond medication, there is evidence that psychotherapy is quite useful for treatment of late-life depression, particularly cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, interpersonal therapy, or IPT, as well as group psychotherapy. There is research showing that exercise has a small but significant impact on depression, and that should always be discussed with a patient or a client. Electroconvulsive treatment, or ECT, remains the gold standard for treatment refractory depression with excellent response rates, anywhere from 70 to 90%. ECT is also a well-tolerated and effective treatment for post-stroke depression in the elderly, which is extremely common. And now there are emerging new neurostimulation techniques like transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, which uses magnets to provide a small current in the brain or deep brain stimulation. And there have been a lot of recent studies showing their usefulness in the treatment of depression. Next slide. So some useful tips for providers when you are attempting to provide coordinated care for the elderly. The first and the most important thing, in my opinion, is to build an interdisciplinary care team. This could include a geriatric psychiatrist, it could include a geriatrician or primary care provider, a therapist, a program counselor, social workers, case managers. The more disciplines you include in your team, the better off you will be. And then ensuring that everybody actually talks to everybody else. And the way we like to do this is, is with a closed loop communication. So for example, say the primary care doctor sees the patient and refers them to me. I see the patient and I loop back to the primary care provider saying, thank you, I saw your patient, this is what I think, blah, blah, blah. Then I make a referral to, say, a social worker and a psychotherapist. They both see the patient and they loop back to me saying, thank you for the referral, we saw your patient, this is what we think, blah, blah, blah. And so we're all communicating with each other, utilizing whatever tools are available to us. I'm a big proponent and believer in electronic health record portals. 
because they're HIPAA compliant, they're documented, it's a nice way to go back and forth. But when it comes to communicating with patients, a lot of older adults are not tech savvy or don't have access to a computer or the internet. So using phone calls, using good old fashioned letters, the most important thing is to establish what the preferred mode of communication is and then using that mode of communication as often as you can. Working in partnership with community supports. So this would include home health aides, visiting nurses. Again, what I like to do is obtain collateral from them before seeing the patient and then providing updated recommendations to them after seeing the patient. Also letting them know that, you know, if anything changes, even in between, please give me a call. Let me know what's going on. And I cannot emphasize the importance of this for the dually eligible elderly. And lastly, um, adopting more of a comprehensive biopsychosocial spiritual approach. So to give you an example, if I see a 75-year-old lady who comes in with, say, depression as well as cognitive impairment, there is a family history of the same, but her depression's worsened after her spouse's death. The spouse was very controlling, and he was doing all of the driving and the cooking, and now she feels helpless. Uh, she's withdrawn from her social activities because, you know, now she's a widow, and, and they can't do couple activities anymore. And she stopped going to church. So I could give her an antidepressant, but it's just as important to address that learned helplessness that she learned in her relationship, and but she can no longer rely on. Just as important to address that social isolation and encourage her to increase those social activities. And just as important to address the spiritual aspect where she's got a double whammy. She can't drive to church anymore, and her spouse died, so she's sort of conflicted about her relationship with God. So it's important to address all of these factors when we're developing a treatment plan. Next slide. Managing medical conditions as well as medications. Anticipating common side effects. Side effects such as sedation, low blood pressure that can make, then make people dizzy and have falls, constipation, confusion. These are very common in the elderly. It's very important to be aware of these. Avoiding duplicative medications clarifying brand name versus generic, because if you've had a discussion using the brand name and then the patient gets a bottle with the generic on it, they are going to be confused. So I often make a point of providing both the names and one in brackets written down, clarifying doses, clarifying frequency for as-needed medications. If it's an as-needed medication, you can take it up to twice a day, up to three times a day, and trying to simplify the medication regimen as much as possible. Addressing the medical problems. So considering how the physical conditions are affecting their mental condition. So if I see somebody who has chronic pain, which is now feeding into the depression, I can treat the depression, but unless that pain is addressed, I'm not really going to be prioritizing their need. And so providing patient-centered care, addressing what is important to the patient when they come in. Promoting approaches beyond medications, discussing non-medication options like psychotherapy, exercise, self-care, encouraging socialization, volunteer activities. And lastly, but most importantly probably, recognizing the individual as a whole person. This is a person separate from their disease, separate from whatever they're coming in with today, and making sure that we address that person. 
trying to consolidate treatment as much as possible, getting treatment under one setting as much as possible, because, again, that improves that communication. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations in care models. To learn more about our current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care.